Hey guys, how are we getting on? Welcome back to the JCC podcast for episode number 40. I'm very, very pleased to announce that we have a special guest on today in the form of Luke Miller. Luke, how are you? Good, man. Good. Excited to be here. I think it's uh, a good topic for today. We're going to get a lot of a lot of in-depth conversations, so I'm excited for it. Absolutely. I didn't even ask you, whereabouts are you calling from today? Out of curiosity. Uh, Dallas, Texas. So very nice. God's country over here. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, let, let's start the ball rolling with the with a little bit of an intro about you, how you got into the, the coach industry yourself, and, and just a little bit about you in general. Yeah, for sure. So um, background for me is I kind of played sports all growing up um, to the point that I played golf at a pretty high level. Um, oh. That was kind of my pursuit for the longest time. Um, and then I had a meniscus tear that I lost my golf scholarships for, um, and basically just transitioned that into bodybuilding, that passion, because I'd already started training. Um, I was in a gym facility that really facilitated bodybuilding and, um, got really addicted to it really fast. Um, and since then I've competed seven times in the last, I guess, 10 or 11 years. So, um, it's it's uh it's a passion of mine to a level that I I never really thought that I would take it um, but I absolutely love it um, I have dual degrees I have an engineering degree in mechanical engineering um, where I spent most of my research doing biomedical based work in like football helmet impacts and stuff and then I also have a graduate degree in exercise physiology from the University of South Florida um, so that was my master's degree. Um, and all of that was kind of built around eventually coaching one day. Um, a lot of my uh, engineering kind of started out with biomechanics, really wanting to kind of dive deeper into that. Um, and then I started coaching like my senior year of college. Um, and man, it just it brought me a uh, fulfillment that I'd never experienced before. Um, engineering school was already like me spending every waking hour watching like YouTube videos, studying anything I could get my hands on um, outside of the confines of studying for school. Uh, so when I graduated, I, I worked for a very short time in the engineering field and then was like, nope, I don't like this. I was coaching on the side still. So grad school was like me taking the full jump and uh, it's best decision I've ever made. So like nowadays it's, it's coaching and education and everything uh, across the board. Mm, absolutely it's funny that you said that in terms of getting into it from a sport like golf or something I think that you know 99% of people are all going to be have that kind of deep down determination from a sport or a competitive environment to get into bodybuilding physique development realm I think for sure and did you play off a low handicap I'm a big golfer myself yeah so I was a scratch when I played competitive I'm so shocked. I'm so shocked by that because I've never heard you actually speak about that. I've listened to probably every every one of your podcasts so far. So yeah, I'm, I shocked, don't, I'm shocked I don't, by that. I don't talk about it much. It consumed my everyday life from like eight years old till about 17. Yeah, I can um, imagine. I was traveling every other weekend competing and all that stuff. So but you um, know what? Like when you think about something like that, it's that's the you know, the no switch you know, that you touch on. That's probably what it, it probably came from that dedicated golf is an incredible. I think that people look at golf and say, you know, it's just a kind of a fluffy sport where you just hit a couple of balls. It is so much repetition, consistency, accuracy the whole time with it that that's yeah. probably where it maybe stemmed it from. Would you, from. Would you think so? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I didn't even touch on this, a good segue. 
Um, uh, no switch fitness is my company that I own. Yeah. Um, it's myself as owner and head coach and head educator with a group of a couple other coaches that work under me. Um, basically the, the modicum is like no off switch in the pursuit of results. So basically whatever it is we're doing, we're doing it so that we get to the end goal at hand. Um, and so a lot of that does kind of stem from like that individual pursuit of perfection details that it takes to compete off at a high level yeah um, and I was just kind of introduced to high level athletics very early um, just with travel golf and everything like that I played on the United States team as a golfer um, oh. yeah when I was 12 so um, it's it's definitely a transfer into bodybuilding um, it's it's probably even more passionate about bodybuilding than it was about golf um, just because through bodybuilding and my coaching, the impact that's there across people's health and transformations and competing and all this other stuff is just unbelievable. And now that, you know, we have coaches that work under me, um, just, I can see that meta impact starting to happen with mm. me educating them and then them coaching their own clients and that kind of stuff. So it's really cool to see what it's kind of grown into. Um, and, and it's definitely kind of where that mentality comes from. A million percent. Yeah, it's been great to see your journey because I only came across you maybe about maybe a year, a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years ago at this stage and maybe a podcast with AJ or John or one of the three or Nick or something like that. And um, yeah. it's been great to learn a lot from you guys using the J3U. Uh, guys, definitely follow Luke on Instagram at No Switch Fitness, isn't it? Um, and all the information stuff that you guys put out uh, is fantastic. And, and I'm definitely putting it into my own coaching process and that drip feed down is definitely happening. But Today is going to be all about uh, fatigue and fatigue management specifically. I know we can get, definitely get off into a tangent. I definitely can, so always rein me back if I do so. Um, yeah. So I'd love, love to kind of just run through a little bit. And, and I know that a lot, a lot of listeners will say, like, kind of, what, what is fatigue? Like, what, what, what actually is happening on a, on a kind of a physiological level? Like, what actually is, is fatigue? Why do we feel trend forms yeah. are dropping, et cetera? This is a, this is a great question. So... Um, it probably helped to kind of classify the two main levels of fatigue that we'll see with the people. So yep. um, global and local fatigue are kind of the two discussions that most people will have. Um, so just to kind of go from smaller to bigger, um, local fatigue is the presentation of typically um, detriment in performance or detriment in um, a, a ability to use a certain body part or plane of pattern. So a lot of times you'll see like with people who want to develop a specific body part, their training program will be heavily kind of skewed towards that. So the way that may present is decrements in performance or output or pumps or whatever it may be relative to that body part relative to the rest of their training. So like leg training will be going well, um, all these other body parts will be going well other than the body part they're trying to bring up. So that's kind of local fatigue. Um, this can be part of the early signs of what starts to get into global fatigue. Um, so just to kind of go through identifying fatigue, um, the common presentations of this are going to be subjective metrics before your objective metrics. And what I mean yeah. by that is you'll see uh, sleep quality kind of go down. You'll see people's desire to train to go down. You'll even see hunger signaling start to go down. Um, oftentimes, as a result of like the skewed sleep, you'll get like grogginess throughout the day, maybe even brain fog. Um, and so these are kind of the metrics that start to give a coach an idea that fatigue is coming on. Now, 
There is also the objective side, which would be your performance in the gym. And hopefully everyone here is tracking their performance in the gym. Um, and that's kind of where, in my opinion, if we're really starting to see decrements in performance, we've probably let the fatigue go too far because we ignored some of those original subjective metrics that are kind of happening um, and we're not catching it on the forefront. Um, and there is like different schools of thought, right? Like there's definitely the overreaching crowd that prefers to kind of take it to that uh, physical down regulation of output mm -hmm. um, in hopes for super compensation on the back end. Uh, based on the literature, I read that that thought process or that thought logic is like kind of derivative from or derived from, I'm not overly convinced. So for me, it's kind of more, um, catching people when they start to go that down slope and, and, and kind of hitting the reset button. So physiologically, like there's obviously levels of fatigue. Um, I don't think it would be pertinent to get into like adrenal fatigue or anything along those lines. Um, but those subjective metrics are really physiologically what we're looking for when we, we see this in, in people outside of like obvious like disease states. So like adrenal insufficiency or anything along those lines, which is a, a whole other case in itself. Um, and if and that would be a way different management system than we we're going to be talking about today. Okay. So I'll leave that off the table. But um, when we kind of look at defining fatigue, um, it's going to be kind of individual to the person. And so a lot of times you'll even see things like resting heart rate elevate, um, which is why it's good to kind of track your resting heart rate a couple times a week. Yep. You'll see blood glucose values start to elevate sensitivity to foods going down. Um, and, and you'll actually see this like chronic stress environment kind of come. Hmm. So that's kind of where we start to see the original signs of fatigue onset mm -hmm. um, and then kind of go from there. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's important to note, and I've talked about this a million and one times, either on the podcast or my channel, <clears throat> the importance of subjective markers over objective, and, and that's probably the reason for. It. Yes, the whoop, the aura ring, and stuff that can give us incredible data, but inevitably, you know, the best dictator for you to manage this, like you said, is that how do you feel? You know, how how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Are you fatigued? Is your usual more? I was. I always run it off my morning routine. Like how, how long is it taking me to get out of bed? How long, how hard is it for me to remember, remember if I brush my teeth or not, or am I kind of, like you said, that brain fog. And um, that's always a, an under, I think an underutilized marker. And people think of, because we have all this readily available data, this is the most important. If it tells me my resting heart is elevated by two beats per minute, I shouldn't train where well, that's of course not, not the case. Um, a nice phrase that I remember, I remember, I think it was might have actually been the podcast that you guys did. You and Nick talked about this red line and trying to get yourself right up to that red line, but not crossing over. So I use it a lot of time in check-ins myself and trying to get up towards that red line as close as you can, but not letting it cross over. When you, when you start to get towards that red line, how do you almost predict yourself in terms of clients when people are getting up to that red line or even for yourself and not cross over the boundary or is it impossible? Uh, this is a good question. I think, so this is actually interesting. So that concept of the red line, I think is differential on application to how your system runs. So clarifying that is basically your red line is your definition of where you're pulling the plug. Mm -hmm. So um, that place is dependent upon how slippery of a slope fatigue is for someone. 
So if it's someone that really struggles with managing it on a consistent basis, maybe their lifestyle factors are very high stress, very high um, output, stuff like those lines, that slope becomes a higher, that slope of that is a higher slope. So yeah, that yeah. it's sliding down into that fatigue a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and so that red line actually is a little bit closer to what their normal state is, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. you're wanting to pull the plug out first. So uh, when we look at like identifying it, a lot of it comes down to your communication systems and how you are tracking these metrics for these individuals. So the one of the things I don't like with Whoop and Aura, and I'm just going to touch on this within my tracking systems, is that it can become a crutch for people. Um, and so uh, the the equate or the the software that's used for that is very heavily dependent upon heart rate. So um, it can really kind of set off some false alarms in a lot of people um, when we see that resting heart rate kind of start to elevate. But it, it doesn't mean you're not prepared for what's to come. So I've actually almost gotten to the point now where I no longer suggest auras or whoops just because of how skewed the data can be relative to heart rate. Now, if someone has it already and they're using it, that's fine. Um, I think it's just as much stress and an issue to over obsess over the data that's coming from that um, to really kind of create that tracking metric. But my point being here is, Uh, On my check-in sheet, I have a color-coded graded check-in system. So basically how it works is like it's a number one through five, um, and they're basically giving feedback on metrics like sleep, general mood, um, brain fog slash attentiveness, um, and things along those lines, right? Um, And so you'll cross-reference that to what's going on with their life. Um, and kind of see kind of where the mishaps may be occurring. Um, and you'll see that trend of the color chart go from like green, which is good into like the yellows, which is like moderate and then into the reds, which is bad nice. as you kind of go across the weeks. Um, and then for each person, it's a different metric that you have to focus on. So like, uh, for example, for myself, um, it's more of a sleep issue um, that, that kind of starts to occur. Um, being 245, 250 sleeps already a little bit of a problem because I have sleep apnea and use a CPAP. Um, but it really becomes a problem when fatigue is high and the brain fog comes. So when I start getting that, I, I'm really kind of already pulling the plug. Um, for me, I know I've taken it too far when I start getting like achy joints and niggles because yeah. that's the point where stuff starts to go south really fast for me. Um, and so when I see that, if it's like, kind of the chronic nature that presents for me, I'm pulling the plug. Now for other people, um, it can be uh, other metrics that we're looking at. Um, Something as simple as just stress management, like they're negatively reacting to things that they normally don't. Mm -hmm. Um, This is why an open-ended section in a check-in form is important because they can kind of share the details of that week within that open-ended section. And you can kind of cross-reference that with like, okay, so things that weren't an issue three weeks ago are now an issue, right? Yes. So um, that's kind of from a coaching perspective, how you track it and, and kind of pull the data out. Now, the problem is, is when people aren't good at communicating, mm. uh, it's harder to predict. And so when it's someone who doesn't communicate well, I don't take them as close to the red line. Um, mm. 
it's not pre-planned deloads, but it's about as close to pre-planned deloads as I'll get in that it's harder for me to kind of get the information I need to make a coaching call. So it needs to be a little bit more structured in nature. And so understanding yourself is an important part of this. I see a lot of people who operate well off of structured deloads. I'm not a fan. I think it's a fallacy of coaching that needs to kind of be getting rid of. Reactive. But for some of these people that don't pay enough attention to it or not, are not willing to kind of pay enough attention to it to use data to make objective coaching calls, um, it can work. And so maybe just kind of having that understanding of where you fall from a attentiveness communication standpoint is important to, to understand. Yeah. I think that reactive instead of proactive and having a, like in eight weeks, we are doing the deload. Well, what if our training performance is absolutely skyrocketing on the biggest push of our life, you know, you can't really plan that in advance. I think that's, that's a really, really important one. I think that from a coaching perspective, I'm sure that you'd be able to uh, agree with this, that in my one, it's very, I'm incredibly data-driven in the data collection chief, but then I also have like a subjective biofeedback form. And I can, and I say this to clients and they always look at me like I have 10 heads. I can feel through their words, how they're feeling in, in a, such a strange way. Like, the level of detail that they're giving, the energy the about the training, about their mood, about their partner, the dinner that they went out to, whatever it is, something across the week. And then it'll just be that week where I just go, oh, something's, something's not right here. Do you know, I can, I can feel through their words, oh, sleep was okay, mixed bag of sleep this week, stress is a little bit higher, I have this work assignment in the, that I have to do by the end of the month or something like that, or set up my sales um, targets have to hit or something like that. Do, do you feel that you can feel that that energy from the check-in? It's it's a strange yeah. thing to kind of classify, isn't it? But it's it's it it's through repetition and coaching. I think that we get it from. As a coach, you become very good at reading an email. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. The point that you can kind of pull out certain words and tell where people are going, right? And so mm-hmm. that just carries over into uh, check-in formats or check-in sheets. So. Yeah, it's definitely something there. Um, I think we can also plan for seasons of life. Mm-hmm. So uh, certain job fields and certain areas and certain, um, and even like in the competitive realm, um, there's seasons that are really high stress, right? Like for me, like December, end of December through like February, March is really low key, really low stress, like not, no one's really competing. So I'm not like traveling for shows. So I can train at, quite a bit of a higher volume than I can mid June or late November, because like those are the kind of the biggest time period over here, Uh, late November being like that lead up to nationals. um, And then like mid June being like peak season for people kind of like May through August is, is where most shows are are done over here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know that like, I'm going to be traveling a lot more for those and I'm going to be um, training in different gyms and things like that. So the volume level at which I let myself get to is not quite as high. Um, And that's because of that product. So if we know, like, for example, like for CPAs, if tax season is around, we know that that's a really high stress season for those individuals. We can maybe regulate the program relative to uh, the life stressors that are in play. And I kind of always talk about this in regards to, filling up a cup with water. Um, So like if you are pouring water into a cup, each thing that pours water into a cup is relative to something that drives fatigue. So this could be nutrition if you're in a diet phase, which is something we haven't touched on yet. Um, Nutrition, if you're in a diet phase, could be training, could be cardiovascular activity, 
Um, could be work stress, could be relationship stress, whatever it may be, right? Each thing's pouring water into that cup. And so if you start getting something that's pouring more water into that cup, you're going to have to pull some water from somewhere else so that it doesn't overflow the cup. And that's kind of where managing someone is important um, in, in that ever-shifting red line, right? Which is kind of the point I'm trying to, to make here is that your red line is never in the same spot which is why I prefer reactive coaching versus proactive. Um, yeah, proactive. Yeah. proactive. So um, it, it's really, really an interesting dynamic um, to run. You can even see uh, just nutritional status largely shift that red line. Yeah. Um, so like, for example, within contest preps, like which is 99% of what I do nowadays mm-hmm. um, is – the deeper into the prep they get, the the lower that red line gets to the point that it's just a consistent volume drop across the entire prep um, where we're basically just keeping them under the red line the entire time. Mm-hmm. So if we go over it, there is the opportunity to deload, but obviously we don't want to do that too much. Yeah. Um, whereas if we're in the all season, we're, we're wanting to kind of push the envelope. We've got food in play. We've got everything that's kind of helping with recovery capacity. So we can kind of push the envelope a little bit and then just rein it in when it's needed. So all that to say, we can set up program design according to seasons of life and understand that, Hey, like we accumulated volume to X number of sets slash workload, however you want to denote it. Um, And we recovered well up until this point. But work is really about to get really stressful. So maybe we bring the reins back in so that we don't have to deload that much sooner, right? So very, very important to understand that portion of the equation as well. Yeah, 100%. That, that does make a lot of sense. I'm trying to think of clients that I have now at the moment who's, who that is the case and, and definitely a, a very clever thing for us to do for sure. In terms of the one question I have for you as well is in terms of performance, so when we're trying to, when we're talking about what how we actually understand like when fatigue is present we talk about performance i'm sure that people will will think immediately that oh you know my dumbbell flat bench i didn't progress it for three weeks i have fatigue where when you look at i'm sure that i'll let you answer this how do you look at train before i'll tee up for this one how do you look at train forms and how do you how do you evaluate train forms to say there is fatigue present is it a certain amount of exercises a certain day or how do you how do you get that feedback Oh, this is an interesting one, especially if someone has an event from a life perspective that precedes a certain session, Mm -hmm. you can see that event deter the performance within that session, but not carry over into the other ones where Mm -hmm. if you're just watching that session, you might be seeing this fatigue present here. Um, But if you're looking at the program as a whole, it's not the presentation of fatigue. It's just kind of a a situation that arose more than one week in a row. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens. So um, you'll see this a lot with people who uh, work shift work. So when they kind of go back onto night shift or when they start their shifts again, um, that you'll see that drop come back. And then you're like, oh shit, stuff's going south. But then it's like you get two days later and they're good again because they're re-regulated. So Mm. watching out for things like that is important. Um, Yeah. Like I said, I'm trying to catch people before the performance starts to drop. So what I'll be watching is, is 
Uh, first off, rates of progression will slow. So obviously from a skill acquisition perspective, um, which is basically just fancy terms for how we learn how to train, um, and how to learn a movement, um, it's going to take a certain number of weeks to learn a pattern. So depending on your skill level, that number of weeks is different, but we're going to go through the, the, the levels of cognition to get to learning that skill. Um, and then that's typically going to look like larger progressions across that portion of the phase. So the earlier portion, right. You'll get to this like mid portion of the program where pro, uh, uh, progressions are consistent, um, but they're not as large in nature. Hopefully volume is accumulated up a bit, um, which will slow the rate of progression down a little bit. Um, and then you start to see things stall. And this is where I'm really starting to pay attention to like, where are these subjective metrics? Because it may be that they're matching the logbook or taking like half a rep or one rep on some of these movements. And you'll start to see this across the board. That's when it's like, okay, are we really getting the feedback that, you know, these subjective metrics haven't gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it just takes you seeing that and pulling the plug for them to really realize how bad it's gotten. Mm -hmm. um, like, I, I don't know if you've prepped before, but like, this is something that people, when they prep, it, it happens to them all the time. They, uh, they, they go through this rigorous contest prep. They get down to asinine body fat levels and then uh, they get post-show. And literally the first thing is like, man, I feel good. I have food back. I'm not doing quite as much cardio. On uh, top of them from the entire contest prep, which is 20, 22, 24 weeks in nature, maybe even longer depending on the competitor, mm -hmm. is kind of built up to this peak moment and it doesn't just wash off the next day or the next week. So you have to wash it off over time. And so you'll get this person, you'll get them nine, 10, 11 weeks post-show and they'll be like, oh, I really didn't feel good. Right after <laughs> yeah. show. It's now that I feel good. And that keeps kind of happening. Sleep continues to improve. Your mood continues to improve, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All that to say that some people aren't very good at being aware of what's going on. So I will use a performance to the point where when I see these progressions really slow, I will pull the plug. However, the important thing to understand here is that pulling the plug for a deload does not mean rotation and exercises. Mm -hmm. This is a very important thing because then you just start to run this dynamic of uh, you go through the skill acquisition phases, you learn the movement, you get like a couple weeks of performance that's progressing you have a couple of those stall weeks. And so you've really only trained that movement well for the latter half of the program or however, or the block, however long that's that period's been. So the deload is literally just going to be a volume drop, maybe reps and reserve inclusion if you're training to failure mm -hmm. um, and then resuming the program and continuing from there. Yeah. I think people it's think, the deload is a dynamic of just it's time to completely rinse off all the volume and restart. It's like, no, it's a stop point. Right. So yeah. there will be a point down the road where we do have to completely rinse it off, but typically you can go through a few deloads before you have to do that. Yeah. I think that's a, a huge misconception. And, and you know what? I, I get a, get asked this every now and again, I used to have in my, in my log book on my, on my sheets, you know, up to, I think it was 12 weeks initially. And then it will come 12 weeks, they'd message me saying, oh, when, when are we doing a new program? I said, like, oh, well, we just we just started this this block and we we're only learning how to learn how to movements. But I think the one, one little takeaway there that I heard, and I'm sure that the listeners would be able to take is 
changing program all the time. Like you said, if you run a, a block for 12 weeks, you're only getting like very, very good at that moving pattern, depending on your skill acquisition, four, six, maybe seven weeks or so. But, and then you flip it again and then you're only getting seven weeks of progression there. And then you're doing it again. And people even change it shorter, six weeks, eight weeks, every every time we do a, a program change, which is never going to allow you to get a, an expert the moving pattern. So when you would run that, I'm just, just asking that for myself, you'd run that block, you'd run a devolume or a deload, and then come exactly back to that same program again without changing all the variables, unless one or two of the exercises need to be absolutely rotated. Am I right, Sarah? Yeah. yeah, the only one of the main reasons I'll rotate exercises would be injury profiles. Yeah. So um, maybe presentation of niggles or, or overuse patterns. Mm-hmm. More commonly, what happens is in that situation, um, it's A, either an injury or B, local fatigue presented before the mm-hmm. global fatigue that caused yeah. the deload. And so the duration of issues for that pattern or that, or that body part was longer than where the subjective metrics came in and became an issue. Mm-hmm. So that would warrant the rotating of the movements. But nine times out of 10, you're not going to have to the rotate the patterns. Um, yeah. Like we have a shoulder press that's been in since the uh, end of my contest prep, which was June, no, mid-July, late mid-July. Mm-hmm. And it is now March. I had to think about that. Still progressing. Don't worry. Yeah. So it's, I mean, we've changed some of the loading patterns on it a bit. It's a prime. So you can kind of yeah, change yeah. hands a bit, but it's still progressing. It's still moving up. And, and that's partly a product of, we just have shit shoulder press machines other than that. Yeah, prime yeah. Presentation. But <laughs> it it's proof in the pudding that if you can keep yourself injury free within a pattern, you can progress it for a long time. Yeah, here, here, another one for you now that me and AJ have, uh, honestly, we started in maybe November 2020, okay? And yeah. barely any changes, no, really very, very little because they just keep progressing and keep progressing. And why would we ever take them out if they're progressing? So I know someone, uh, I did this in a, my, my YouTube video that I just posted up this week, talked about the one exercise in my push that wasn't progressing. Every other exercise, pretty much every exercise in my whole plant, the moment bar, dumbbell flat press hadn't progressed in three weeks so we just rotated that out for a, a weighted dip and be, be, i think a lot of people were asking like what why didn't you just change your whole plan like wh- why would i change the whole plan if only the one small minor variable rather than all the variables is, is that something that you would do then in that occasion yeah, as well for sure i actually just did this myself so yeah um i had a press pattern in uh incline dumbbell press that mm-hmm. was kind of leading off my chest focus push after our lateral raises. Yeah. Um, and we had kind of progressed it to the one fifties and gotten to the point where kicking back the dumbbells was more so hard. Isn't it? I'm not doing one. I'm not doing anywhere near one fifties. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. Go on. Sorry. Um, and then because of that, like we were starting to get some niggles and stuff. So we kind of transferred that over into a flat dumbbell press um, which is obviously a different plane and a different yeah. pattern, but in my opinion, is exposing the pec fibers to more overall tension just from yeah. the humeral plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we re-rinsed that off. Um, I really kind of reset form, which is an important part of uh, if you are going to change an exercise, make sure you take the time to recalibrate your execution. Yeah. Um, and, and now we're kind of progressing that and it's, it's moving fairly well. 
Um, the 140s last week moved like super light. So it was super easy progression. It was like a plus three on the book, which is nice. kind of telling me that. And that example right there was like, I'm still in the learning phase, right? <laughs> like, even though the flat dumbbell press has been in for a couple rotations of the program, it's like, man, you don't take a plus three if you've already learned. Mm. Right. Mm. So, um, those kinds of things kind of tell you like you're nowhere near your physical output ceiling. Yeah. So just keep plugging away. Um, and then if you do need a rotation because of something like you just mentioned, whole program progressing, but this one movement's not, um, it's, it's typically pretty apparent that a, a change has to happen. Um, and yeah. the only reason I changed from incline to flat dumbbell, so actually changed the plane of motion was because I wanted a little bit more exposure for my chest development in the flat plane, but I wanted to keep in a dumbbell variation for serratus function. So hopefully your coach is walking. Yeah. So it's an easy swap, right? Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully your coach is walking you through that logic and that kind of thought process. Um, it, it does kind of change the volume landmarks for like shoulders. So like I can handle a little bit more shoulder work because it's not getting as much carryover from the incline pressing. Mm -hmm. So those yeah, are the things you, you you have to manage too. Hundred percent. I think that's a really really good point. So I think we've we've pretty pretty well touched on the kind of how we understand where fatigue is or how do you know when it's coming on from a subjective and objective perspective, train performance, sleep, stress, all the kind of the biofeedback that we touched on. Also, then kind of acutely in 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 a session, how to look at kind of the unprogressible exercise and maybe rotate that in rather than changing a whole program as a whole. But let's say that that I'm coming to you now, Luke, and you're looking at my sheets and my subjective markers is, God, I feel shit. I feel awful. My sleep is poor. My low energy is an, oh, Josh is getting close to this red line. My performance is stagnating. Even some lifts are tailing off. You know I'm getting to that red line now in a second. What would be some of the implications, the applications even, excuse me, that you use to try and negate or mitigate and wash away any of this fatigue? Oh, this is a great question. So um, let's define some things before we go into applications. So mm -hmm. frequency um, obviously is how often are we hitting a body part? So um, hitting chest every three days versus every four is a more frequent program. So um, using frequency as a volume metric is important to understand um, because within this, depending on the level of fatigue, um, some sort of extra rest days typically going in so that we spread the frequency of training out, which is a large volume drop within itself. Um, and so that that improves recovery capacity. Um, typically session volume is going to go down between 30 to 45%, depending mm -hmm. on the session. Um, and so you'll see that happen. And then typically I do a graded scale of reps and reserves. So for people who don't know, um, like how I train and how just because of the content I put out psychologically, how a lot of my clients prefer to train is, is training to failure for the majority of the program. Um, so maybe week one and week two will be, you know, form resets with one to two reps in reserve, but then it's removed pretty fast. Um, so I'll use a graded scale of reps in reserve across those days of sessions. So, uh, if you're running like, a a push pull leg split, just as an example, um, you're kind of coming up to the next rotation of PPL um, and you're at this spot and it's time to pull, pull you back. What that may look like is push, reduce volume at 45%, 
two reps in reserve. Um, and then you have an off day and then you do pull it's reduced volume by 35 to 40%, one rep in reserve, um, another rest day and then legs, which would be one rep in reserve about 35 to 30% volume pull. Um, and then another rest day after that. So you just took three training days and spread it over six. Um, and evaluate on that last rest day. So, is the subjective metrics gone? Do you, are you sleeping a lot better? Um, how do joints feel, et cetera, et cetera. So walk through that. Um, and if that's the case and we've rinsed it off, great. What we'll do is we'll just restart the program at that, that starting spot. Um, and unless this person is trained at this high volume level for a couple blocks, which does warrant the, the bring back down, uh, which will let me, I'll touch that in a bit, but assuming we're not there, you'll just return to the normal programming and should be good to go to run from there. Now, duration is very different individual to individual. So like for me, I'm so, I do my own training. So um, I'm so good at catching these markers. I can catch them, do two deload sessions with an extra rest day. And I'm typically good. Yeah. um, But it's just because I'm catching it a lot sooner. Um, and so what it does is it prevents the amount of time that I have to not train. Um, but for most people within a coaching setting, um, it's typically, you know, three to four sessions of reduced volume, um, with reps and reserve, and then also kind of that spreading out nature. Um, and you kind of go from there. Um, quick one, just, just while you're on that, just so I I don't forget to ask you, sorry to interrupt you. When you say, let's say a 35 or let's say a 45% reduction in volume people people are probably saying okay do i do my two sets of 10 let's say for instance just for argument's sake to make sure i don't get my math wrong if um, let's say i'm doing two sets of 10 for some for some reason and i did okay i'm going to do two sets of six six reps instead is is that what you uh, mean or, or how would you run that? i think i know no, your answer, so but- directly referring to the number of sets performed in a session so yeah just for, for discussion's sake, if you're doing 10 sets of chest in a session and you do a 40% volume drop, you would do six on the deload. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of where it is. I do prefer on the compounds to have one compound that's, um, a top set only, and then pull the back offset. Yeah. And then one compound that's the other way around. Okay. Um, mainly just one set, that's driving a large amount of mechanical tension for tissue retention and then the removal of one top set for a large fatigue drop. Mm-hmm. So if it's, let's say your first two patterns are like flat chest press, incline chest press, I would probably keep the top set for the flat chest press and then take the top set off for the incline chest press. Okay. And then move it along from there. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of how that works. Yeah. That, that's exactly what I'll do rather than just even pull off one, just, Usually I'll, I'll program two working sets on pretty much everything and just pull off a, uh, the, usually the, the heavier set from a neurological perspective, just washing away the fatigue there. But I kind of like that thought process of having one loading set across the whole session and then all the rest running a kind of a, a 10 to 15 back off set, something like that. So for the listeners out there, rather than actually reducing your reps in, in the set itself, take away sets from the actual workout itself i think is, is definitely a nicer but it's very difficult to judge then as well if you're doing six and a half reps 
on a, with the same load, you know, I'm sure that's quite difficult to do. Um, so that, that's a really, really good point on that one. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the points in deloads is like driving a stimulus that's going to retain tissue mm-hmm. and literally just driving that amount of stimulus. And no more. And remarkable, remarkably low amount to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your proximity to failure is something to, to keep in mind here. Yeah, that sure. you're more likely to drive a retentive stimulus one to two reps in reserve than at four to five reps in reserve, where if you were removing the, the reps from that set, you would be pulling that much back in, in total reps in reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something to think about. And then the only thing that may change across to kind of give someone like a scaled thought process is the deeper you get into a macro cycle, which is like the whole yeah. spectrum of a program, each deload across that macro might require a little bit more. So if you're kind of reaching that point on the very end where it's time to just completely re-rosh and start the program at a baseline volume again, that deload may take more than like the first deload into the, into the hmm. mesos that you're getting into. Okay. Really interesting on that one as well. Did you have anything else to touch on train there when I stopped you in your tracks? I know you're going to go and say, or was that, was that what you're going to say? That was where I was going is that like at some point you're going to have to almost reset the volume level a bit, especially, especially for people who are trying to trying to bring up a single body part Mm -hmm. where the program's really specialized. Like you can't run that forever. So you have to eventually kind of re reset it. But Uh, I think the most important thing to understand is that if you just track your subjective metrics and let yourself go one to two days or probably two to three days of feeling better before you start back on the program, there's probably not much you can do wrong with a deload, right? It's just spread out the sessions, make sure you still train, but don't take it too far um, and, you know, stop a rep or too short, shy of failure. I'll always pull any set intensifiers that are in there as well. I didn't touch on this. Point you. Like if you're doing like drop sets or rest pauses or anything in the program, all of those will drop out for the deload um, as well, obviously because of the reps and reserve. So that'll be kind of like something to consider as well is that depending on how many set intensifiers you have, each set intensifier would be a volume drop in and of itself. So um when in doubt, I would err on the side of more of a pool than not enough of a pool. Well, so my, my take, not not three sessions, you might actually have to do it for six, seven sessions then at a less level. You'd rather just wash it away quicker, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. So training, that's a really, really good insight into training and the volume and the durations and the frequency. I actually thought it was quite a nice one. I never really thought about that session spacing in between. It was a nice thought. Anything from a nutrition perspective that we should look at? Any changes, let's say, from a uh, an off-season or an improvement phase, is what I, I like to call it, or uh, a dieting phase? Is there any difference that you would run alongside that? Um, and then also cardio and output as well. Yeah, so great questions here. So lay some context down. Um, to start with dieting, because this is where issues will typically arise faster. Um, how strict is the timeline you're working with? And how on pace with that timeline are you? Hmm. Um, So for dieting, we don't want to spend much time having to pull back to maintenance or pull back because of fatigue. Um, We kind of just want to let this drip of fatty acid or fat loss happen over time. 
um, and basically just try to mitigate the fatigue with the training side. However, there are cases where um, pulling someone from the deficit into maintenance during the deload is warranted. Um, it's very few and far between. Um, and it's typically uh, from people who you would do it if they were ahead of schedule. So they're, they're really ahead of schedule. You, you're not worried about it at all. You're going to psychologically give them a break and then re-engage the response back into it. Most of the time, I would say nutrition is not going to have to change, <clears throat> change from a dieting sense. Um, and then on the flip end, for all seasons, um, one of the things I see people wanting to do is during their deload sessions, reduce the caloric intake because they're worried about like fat accumulation right. during deload, right? Mm -hmm. so, so in there, what you have to realize is that if you're doing the session spacing, you're having more off days with lower caloric load across six days. Yep. So your net caloric intake across a week is already lower. Um, and then caloric intake from those training days that are deload days is a large portion of the substrate that's going to be needed to recover. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a big mistake that people make on the off season side is trying to reduce caloric intake because they're afraid of this like fat accumulation that may occur or that yeah. they, in their head think that can occur because they're deloading. And it's like, honestly, like if you keep the food where it is and wash the fatigue off, you'll probably see a weight drop just from yeah. a, chronic inflammation standpoint. So, yeah. um, something that it's really important to understand if, if I have to run a deload within a contest prep, which is the fat loss phases that I run now, just as a coach, 99% of my clients are prep athletes. Um, 9.5 times out of 10, I'm not no, doing them out of deficit. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine very and rare that I have. And when that, that client that you have, Let's say you're coaching me through a diet and you say, Josh, we're going to pull away, do you know, at, at six weeks out from a show. And I said, no way, Luke, absolutely no way. Like I need to go, come on, foot on the pedal, man. Come on, more, 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 more deficit, put me into more of a deficit. How do you manage that type of client? And how do you talk to him or her, of course, um, of, of how to, how, what, what actually, why are we doing this? And why does it need to be done? Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of situations where that's tough. So, in my opinion, an ideal prep is ran where you're ready two to three weeks out. Yeah. Um, and then you're kind of feeding back into the show so yeah. that the load isn't an issue um, when it does come time for peak week. Um, so that's hard to get across to people because they think that they're not ready and they had to pull more off and they're like, look like an anatomy chart. Right. <laughs> um, so communication is a big one on that front. So basically starting out the prep with saying like, Hey, my goal is to get you to here two to three weeks out so that we can bring more food in yep. so that they know at the forefront of the prep that this might happen. Um, but, and then always put this caveat, but if we have to dig those last few weeks to make sure you're hundred percent, we will dig. We'll yeah. um, and so that way they understand that you're not saying like, this is going to happen, even if you're not ready. It's like, we're just going to have to do whatever it is. It, it gets you ready at the best. And ideally we would be pulling food back up. Now at the six week mark, when people kind of are a little bit resistance to like fatigue drops or things like that, most of the time what I'll do is rather than nutritionally change, I'll do the cardiac output or the cardiovascular output um, side of the equation in large reductions in activity 
where we can see a lot of fatigue drop just from that. Like you'll, you'll have people say like their legs feel like they're eight feet behind them. Yeah. You'll do like two to three days of cardiovascular reduction and then legs feel fresh again. And so that's typically the direction I'm going. If someone, if someone struggles psychologically with pulling back. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's a nice thought process. I know this is definitely something that I found with a couple of clients in the past where something like that happened and, and she's prepping for a photo shoot and then legs just felt like it was Joe Dashi, actually quite a, a lot of just incredible amount of information, even getting into like a leg, leg extension or a leg curl could barely even do it. I think that was the, the main thing that helped get her, get her to the shoot itself was just pulling cardio back. And I think it's a nice thing to do then, then skip, skipping lower body training or pulling down volume in there it's it, it's actually quite effective i found as well and it sounds like you're the same as well yeah yeah it's it's also like man like peaking someone for a photo shoot or for a contest or whatever um it's it's not it's not um what's the word i'm looking for easy it's not, I, it's not ironic that a lot of people feel like they look better a week after the show yeah when like fatigue's dropped and stress has dropped they haven't eaten a shit ton of food if they've done their job you know they need to do Mm -hmm. um rather than like maybe leading into the show and it's typically just a fatigue stress drop Um, but if you run a good peak week and you kind of into the photo shoot or into the show uh you're probably dropping enough fatigue to have that presentation happen so yeah it's it's important um because for some people like in that situation a week's not enough to pull that off and it takes longer to pull that much amount off depending on how mm-hmm. hard the diet was. So yeah, it's definitely something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah. hundred percent. Listen, that was brilliant. Really, really good information from start to finish around our train performance, our subjective markers, and also just reading the words of the client and understanding where we're at and then how to make the nutritional changes and output changes to wash away fatigue. I think that there's a, a thought process that, and I'm sure that you'll, you'll back me up in this one, there's never going to be fatigue present. We should always be feeling amazing. Dieting off-season is never going to be the case, but knowing that red line that we touched on there, how close to it and just predicting before it, I think it is quite, a, quite an important variable, I think, going forward for us. Yeah, for sure. So... It's important just if you track consistently, it'll be easy to pick up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, before we jump off, Luke, if you wanted to plug yourself about any kind of the the seminars and the Instagram and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, so No Switch Fitness is Instagram. It's on YouTube as well. Um, We have a podcast called the No Switch Fitness Podcast as well. Um, I'm also an educator for J3 University where we do the J3 University podcast. from a events perspective, uh, March 20th, we'll be in Manchester with our friends from Pro Coach doing a physique seminar. Uh, that'll be a very great uh, day. So that's Sunday, March 20th. Um, and then a week later, we'll be up in, in Rotherham at uh, Ultraflex doing a two-day seminar with Prescript um, Hypertrophy Intensive, uh, which will be a lot of fun as well. That'll be March 26th and 27th. So it's super excited for the UK tour. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you guys can find me on any of those platforms. Pretty much just type in No Switch Fitness and you'll find me. Um, and just feel free to reach out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I was saying to you before we jumped on to call, absolutely gutted. I can't be there for that. That physique development one that you're doing in a FLF, I'd say, is just going to be top, top class. So guys, if anyone is listening to this and hasn't got a ticket to it and they're a coach or even just a fitness enthusiast looking to 
try and develop their physique to the best of their potential, um, I would definitely, definitely advise getting over to one of those. But listen, Luke, I will not uh, hold you any longer out of your busy schedule. Really appreciate you coming on board and uh, hopefully we'll get you back on at some stage down the line as well. Yep, of course. I appreciate it, man.